All the way back in the 1300s, I didn't realize this, but it was Geoffrey Chaucer who famously wrote, all good things must come to an end. Who knew we were higher literature here? As we'll see today, that's not entirely true. There are certain things that will not come to an end, but some things do. Today is our final adventure with the New Testament church before we start our summer journey through 1 Peter, which starts next week. Our adventure today is also quite literally at the end of the Bible. It is the last of the 1,189 chapters that make up the Holy Bible. And more significantly, it is at the end of the great story of the Bible. We so often focus on individual verses and chapters and books of the Bible that we don't tend to think of it as a single book telling one grand story, but it is. And you can think of it in different ways, but one that I like is that you can view it as having four major parts. Creation, when God created The universe created life, created mankind, and everything he created was very good. The fall, when mankind chose to turn away from God, to do what we wanted to do, and to make ourselves like God. That didn't work out very well. The fall damaged all of mankind and all of creation. Work stopped being fun, you know, for most people, I guess. The land became cursed. Life became difficult. And what becomes so very clear from Genesis 3 on is that we had gotten ourselves into a mess that we could not get ourselves out of. We needed a redeemer. Redemption, act three of this story, if you will, when Jesus Christ came as the redeemer, sacrificing himself on the cross and rising from the dead so that all those who believe in him will be reconciled to God. And the last chapter of the great story of the Bible, the new creation long prophesied in the Old Testament and in the new. It is the end of the fallen world that is the only world we have ever known. The time when the curse of the fall is fully reversed and the faithful will spend eternity with God in the perfectly renewed creation. Well, last week we took a look at the end of the redemption portion of the Bible. We talked about the gathering and perfection of the church in the presence of God. And today we're going to look at the new creation. And I hope that it excites you, that it inspires you, because I'm excited about it. And I think we are meant to be excited about what lies ahead in the new creation. Now, while this is the end of Scripture, I think it is critically important that we understand that this is not the end of the adventures of the New Testament church. That it is just the beginning of an eternity of the most amazing and beautiful adventures that we are not even capable of imagining. Adventures that will last forever. So our passage this morning is Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. 
They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will need, they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This passage stands squarely in the new creation. At the end of Revelation, 20 death and hell themselves were cast into the lake of fire. There is no more sin or death to worry about. In Revelation 21, John sees the new heaven and the new earth, and he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down from heaven to the renewed earth. The bride of Christ, the perfect bride. In the new Jerusalem, there's no need for a temple because... God's right there dwelling among us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that brings us to today's passage, which reveals some very exciting details about our future. And I want us to think about it. Our future. This is not some abstract concept. It's not some interesting vision. This is the future of every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. This is our future we're talking about today. So often here we talk about everlasting life and eternal life and, and being in the presence of God, and, but I'm not sure how often we really think about it. Is that just sort of a phrase we say, but we don't really contemplate the impact of that? I think that our common enemy would like for us to think that heaven is going to be boring. But heaven is just going to be so abstract, it doesn't really have any meaning. And so he wants that so that we won't be excited about it. Because if we're not excited about that, then we're not going to be excited about living this life in anticipation and expectation of the next. And so that's why we spent last week in this, thinking about heaven. Thinking about what the Bible says about heaven. Last week, we saw that image of the perfected church standing in robes, washed clean in the blood of Jesus, comforted by our Father in heaven. But that's just one phase of our time in heaven. That is the time before the new creation. It's probably closest to our stereotypical image of heaven, but it is a phase. Today's passage is what addresses the rest of eternity. And I think it answers two questions that many Christians may have. What will heaven be like? And what will we do there? There are a lot of lies and half-truths out there in the media, in conversation, and amongst Christian circles. But today I want to look at what the Bible says, what the truth is about these two questions. So the first question, what will heaven be like? Well, the passage starts by describing our physical environment. And what it has to say is breathtaking. Because the bottom line is that the new creation is the complete and total reversal of the fall. To truly appreciate Revelation 21 and 22, it is beneficial to spend some time in Genesis 2 and 3. Because there's such a strong correspondence. The message is there. The fall is reversed. The world is renewed to the kind of perfection it was always meant to have in Eden. It doesn't mean we're going to live in a garden. Because Revelation is clear, there are cities, there are nations, right? The world is kind of taking the the best parts of the world as we know it, but they're perfected in a way that the Garden of Eden was perfect. 
John writes in verses 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So going right down the main street in the New Jerusalem will be this beautiful, bright, crystal clear river that is free of pollution and imperfection. I visit a lot of cities that are built on rivers. It's pretty common. Probably you have too. Anybody remember any rivers that were perfect and crystal clear and brilliant with no like beer cans and dead fish floating around in them? Well, most of this river, most rivers in the world, you go to any river in the world, most of them are flowing from some headwater up in the mountains or some elevated area. But this river is special because it flows from the throne of God and of Jesus. They are the source of the river of the water of life. Just like Jesus promised to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This river is bringing to mind the great river of Eden in Genesis 2.10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. This river of life is also described in Ezekiel 47. And if you want to do a little extra homework this weekend, this week, Ezekiel 47 covers much of the same ground as Revelation 21 and 22 and helps us understand a little bit better what's going on. But the good thing is we get to be by this river for all eternity. And the fact is that this water, which is amazingly powerful, as we'll see in a moment, is something that we're encouraged to drink from. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, Jesus invites us to drink from it, saying, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It is free for those who put their faith in Christ. And then John's vision continues to reveal that heaven is going to be the perfect restoration of God's plan for the world, the way it was meant to be. Because he adds, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Have no doubt, this tree of life is the one that was present in the Garden of Eden. It's the one we lost access to in Genesis 3, 22 and 23, which reads, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This is the tree, the fruit of which lets us live forever. This was meant to be our inheritance in the garden before sin interfered but it will be freely available to all of us in heaven. And I need to take a little bit of a digression here because we've got a couple minutes. I won't hold you too long. It's important as you read Revelation twenty-two fourteen. there is an admission standard to get to the new Jerusalem, to get to the tree of life. It says that their robes were washed. So we talked about last week. To get to the new Jerusalem, your robes must be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You must have accepted him in faith as your Lord and Savior to get to this awesome, restored paradise. Revelation 2.7 promises, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise of God is a cool phrase. 
Paradise was originally a Persian word. It was referring to the garden of the king. The garden of our king, from the perspective of Revelation 2, is in heaven. But by Revelation 22, it has come down to the new earth. And we get to be in the garden of the king. In this vision, we see that this fruit of the tree will be available for all of us to eat. That, and note how remarkable it is, that as it was supplied by the water of life, how abundant and fruitful it is. Right? Because fruit trees here on earth, they grow one kind of fruit. You do not get an orange from, a, from an apple tree. But here it grows 12 kinds of fruit. It doesn't just produce one crop a year. It produces crop after crop after crop in abundance. And you know it's going to be the best kind of stuff. So whatever kinds of fruit you like, I think you can picture and get the idea of just how great it's going to be there, whatever your favorite fruits are. Now, the first part of verse 3 is the one that ultimately tells us everything we need to know about heaven, what it's going to be like, but it's the one that probably slides by the easiest. Because you can latch on to a river. Okay, I get rivers. All right, I get trees. But the first part of verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed. And if you haven't been holding on to your Genesis 3, you might let that little piece slide by. But this is the biggest thing. Because God's curse is what it's talking about. The original language is saying that nothing will be under God's curse any longer. Well, that's pretty tremendous because God's curse has been with us since the fall. We have never seen a part of the planet that was not under God's curse. So even as we think of the most beautiful places we have ever been, the most amazing things we have ever seen, the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, right, the Grand Canyon, the ocean, Alaska, it was all cursed. It was less than it was meant to be. And what he's saying here is that the curse goes away. Right, the curse, in Genesis 3.17, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Right, because of the sin, the earth was cursed. And that curse has been with us since the fall. It is what makes work difficult. It is what makes nature dangerous and unpredictable at times, as we have been reminded yet again this past week. The curse on the earth is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 when he says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The, the whole of creation wants to go back to what it was. Perfect. And it got messed up. But here, as the old world has passed away and the new creation has begun, the curse is fully and completely reversed. There is no more dying. There is no more pain. There is no more breaking down over time. There is no more natural disaster. See, when God cursed the world, human relationships were cursed, work was cursed, and nature was cursed. What verse 3 tells us is all of that is reversed in the new creation. Life will be endlessly joyful without the side effects of the curse. Even work will be restored to what it should have always been. 
endlessly creative and interesting and purposeful and a joy to do. So that's what the new Jerusalem is going to be like for believers in a physical sense. It's centered around the river of life, the tree of life. It's full of joy because the curse is gone. We're spending our time in the perfectly restored earth, and it's precisely what God intended it to be. But more important than this amazing physical reality is the fact that we will continue to be in the unveiled, face-to-face presence of God and Jesus forever. We talked about this some last week, right, when we saw the perfected church gathered in the presence of God. And today's passage makes clear that this is what every single believer should expect to be their future. This is our future together. Verse 3 says, The throne of the God of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And verse 4 says, They will see his face. We talked about how amazing this is going to be, that we will directly see the face of God. That is something that if you look in the Bible, has not happened since Adam, since the fall. Right? Now we saw the face of God in the form of the incarnate Jesus. But to see God the Father face to face, that doesn't happen in the Bible. It's explained for us in Exodus 33.20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In our fallen condition, it is so overwhelming to see a perfect and holy God that we are just simply overloaded. We die. But in heaven, we will be face to face with the creator of the galaxies and the stars. And like Adam in the garden, we'll be able to walk with God. And God's presence will be constant. It will be glorious. It will be lighting the whole city. Verse 5 explains, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. The Greek word for glory describes God's brilliance, his brightness, his outshining, his radiance. And here we see his glory is so bright that there will no longer be lamps or even sun. It will be perfect golden daylight all the time. God himself will be our light forever and ever. And it is worth remembering, as we've talked about some over the last several months, the frequent contrast that John makes between nighttime and darkness, and sin on the one hand, and daylight, and light, and holiness on the other. And so the message here isn't just that we'll be able to do stuff 24-7, we won't have to worry about sleeping or whatever, that we won't trip over stuff in the dark. The message is that in heaven there will be no sin, there will be no darkness, there will be nothing to fear ever again. And so all in all, the new creation is going to be pretty amazing. A fruitful, regenerated, godly place in the constant presence of God and Jesus. But this passage also answers the question of what will we do in heaven? And I think many Christians think we're going to spend eternity in heaven sitting on clouds playing harps. I won't take a survey. And for those who think it is, I don't think you're that off the mark if you would be like, that actually sounds kind of boring. Not really a harp kind of guy. 
It doesn't sound all that heavenly, but I've got some good news for you if you're one of those people. Now, if you're a harpist, maybe you will get a harp all the time in heaven. But if you're not a harpist, and I am not, the good news is heaven isn't going to be like that. In fact, in heaven, we're going to do two major things. The first is that we will be worshiping God through service forever. Verse 3 notes, his servants will worship him. But the word that is translated as worship here isn't the word that usually indicates like I'm bowing down and I'm praying and singing. That's an important aspect of worship, but that's not the, the word that's used here. The word that's, that's used here in the original is, is defining worship as service, worship through serving the Lord. So heaven is not just an endless church service. And again, I understand if that's maybe not that appealing a picture, I won't be offended. Right? It's not just singing songs for millions of years if you're not a singing sort of person. Right? I'm sure for some of you it may well be singing for millions of years because that's what you want. I, nobody wants me singing for millions of years. But it is actively doing tasks for God as your act of worship. It's the kind of worship I think of as kind of like what the Old Testament priests had to do, where it was roll up your sleeves and, and get sweaty doing, doing the things that God tasked you to do. So I think you, you kind of kind of see where we're going here. Verse 4 says his name will be on their foreheads, and that is denoting a full commitment to God in both directions, that we belong to him, we are his men and women, but that we are fully committed and have chosen to follow and obey him. It is certainly presenting a strong contrast to those who early in Revelation took the mark of the beast on their forehead, but I also think it harkens back to the high priests of Israel who who wore a turban and had a gold plate on their forehead that said, Holy to the Lord. See, in heaven, as we talk about worship through service, we will be serving as priests to God, continuing to do the work that he has appointed for us to do. So I think I've made the point, right? Heaven, Life in heaven isn't just going to be strumming a harp, unless that you're a harpist and that is what God's appointed for you to do, but probably not for me but it will be spent worshiping God through serving him. And if you like serving here and now, I think you're going to love it even better there, right? Imagine how good it will be when you know that the, the service you're doing is always directly at the request of God. It's never busy work. Nobody's going to cancel the project halfway through because they have a different idea. And everyone's going to be fully appreciative and cooperative of it. And the work isn't cursed, so it's going to be a joy to do. In fact, even if you don't like serving here, I think under those circumstances, you'll find that you'll love serving there. But the second thing we're going to be doing in heaven is even more surprising to the average Christian, I would suspect, because verse 5 says they will reign forever and ever. Not rain in the sense of water coming from the sky, but rain in the sense of serving as a king or queen. See, we're not just going to be mere servants doing God's chores for him in eternity. So if that, that worship through service didn't sit right with you, well, we can talk about that in a theological sense. But, but it's not just that. It's not like go get the dry cleaning for the robes or something like that. It is serving as a king or queen. Right? We will, each of us who believes in Christ, be kings and queens, ruling and reigning with Jesus as his co-king or co-queen 
We will have dominion over our immediate responsibilities, just as Adam had dominion over his responsibility before he messed it up. Now, if you're like, I'm not really the reigning sort, I'm more of a follower. If you don't think that reigning is for you, that you're not really cut out to reign in heaven, well, let me tell you, if you are a believer in Christ, you are created to reign in the new earth, in heaven. In Revelation 5, 9, and 10, the song of the elders proclaims to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We, we talked about that last week. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. We just talked about the priest aspect a little while ago. And they shall reign on the earth. Paul affirms this as well, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So the Bible is clear. Our destiny as believers in Jesus Christ is to reign in the new creation alongside Jesus with complete dominion over our particular set of responsibilities. And what those responsibilities are, I, don't, I can't tell you. Right? I think they're probably going to be better than we could imagine. But I would point you towards Luke's record of the parable of the talents. All versions of the parable of talents convey this message, but Luke's is really, really clear. Right? That the reward for being faithful over small things in this world is authority over cities in heaven. Right? So in other words, we're going to reign with Christ in the new creation, and we will do so over responsibilities that are, that are both dramatically greater than anything we've ever encountered, and they're also proportional to how faithful we have been with our responsibilities in this life. It's not a judgment on how big our responsibilities are in this life. If, so some people, if you feel like, well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't really like what I'm called to do as part of the church or what I'm called to do as part of the community. But if God's calling you to it and you are faithful to it, then the reward is that in heaven there will be great responsibilities given to you. Ultimately, this is the glorious destiny for every person who accepts Jesus Christ as his or her Savior and Lord. Right? To rule with him forever to enjoy his glory and presence 24-7 for eternity in this perfectly restored new Jerusalem. So as we see the church reign with her master, we come to what I think could be no more beautiful ending for our adventures with the New Testament church. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing vision that you have given John that he has shared with us and for all the other scriptures through which you have revealed our future. Lord, we are so thankful that we have a future, though we certainly do not deserve it ourselves, but that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, this glorious future is ours. Lord, help us to live our lives here and now and in the coming days as we go out from this place in light of our amazing eternal destiny. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. What I've described this morning is both beautiful and true. Right? This is our great hope as believers. 
And while we freely admit that we are all sinners, and so we can never hope to deserve this or to earn our way into this amazing destiny, we don't have to. Because we know that Jesus took our sin upon himself when he chose to suffer the humiliation and the excruciating pain of death on a Roman cross. For those who put their faith in him, his sacrifice is the only one we will ever need to cover our sin. To be a part of this new heaven and new earth, this new Jerusalem that we have just been talking about. And it's such a simple thing, but it can be so hard to let go of a lifetime of habits. A lifetime of sins, a lifetime of just trying to get to God on our own terms. It can be hard to let go of that, but if you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, you you need to let go. You need to let go of your pride. Let go of your sin. Let go of yourself and grab a hold of Jesus. So if you're ready to make that step, then as the music plays, as we sing, won't you please come forward and pray with us? And for those who are already believers but are not yet members here at Lake Ridge Baptist Church, we would encourage you to also come forward to join with us as we work to fulfill our responsibility to make disciples of all nations in light of our eternal destiny. For everyone else, as we sing, I'd encourage you to use these next few moments to just reflect and thank God for his grace and mercy that makes this amazing future possible. And to think about how to live in light of it as we go forward in this life.